Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work through the Word Diet together. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we're in the book of Joshua, the book that awakened me to the power and applicability of the Old Testament, in particular the fruit and the fight of Canaan, and it led to my book on Joshua, Inheriting Our Promised Land. And so these episodes are, in essence, an extended audio version of that book. In the previous episode, we worked through Joshua 20 and 21, the cities for the Levites, and then of particular interest to Christians, the cities of refuge, one of two excellent pictures of Jesus in the book of Joshua, along with the scarlet cord of Rahab back in chapter 2. Cities of Refuge are an amazing institution in Israel, and so if you missed that episode, I hope you'll go back and pick that up. There are details in that chapter and many others in the Bible that provide so much inspiration to my faith, and the Cities of Refuge is one of the top ones on that list. So that takes us to chapter 22, which is, I think, one of the most underrated chapters in the Bible, extremely practical, and yet it's not talked about very much. So we'll cover the text itself and then cover general applications to communication and finish with a focus on communication within marriage, all of it drawn from Joshua 22. So far in Joshua, we've seen Israel's preparation for battle in chapters 1 through 5, their battles within their promised land in chapters 6 through 12, and the appropriation of their inheritance in chapters 13 through 21. Along the way, we've seen how this relates to sanctification in the Christian life, gaining ground in our souls and winning battles in our promised lands against the world, the devil, and the flesh, enjoying the fruit and fight of our promised land. Now we reach the concluding chapters in Joshua, in essence an epilogue of two stories over three chapters, the events surrounding the eastern tribes returning home, and Joshua's two final speeches to the leaders and to the people. In other words, it's time to say goodbye as the chapter wraps itself up, both to the eastern tribes and to Joshua and Eleazar, the leaders of this generation. Over and above the interesting and applicable details within these closing chapters, this epilogue is also important in that it tells us that battles and warfare were not meant to be the sum of their life. So too with us, there is a season for warfare and a season for peace. In fact, we're built to pursue and enjoy abundant life, and the battles we face in our promised lands are meant as a means to that end. We fight our battles so that we might enjoy our promised lands more fully. We are always to be alert to invasion from the outside, insurgency in the church, and rebellion within our souls, all, so to speak, 
But we are not always supposed to struggle. We are on constant alert and we defeat our enemies as they arise. But in the meantime, we enjoy the abundant life to which God has called us. In the midst of this, we see the importance of unity in these last few chapters. Chapter 22, verse 3, chapter 23, verse 2, and chapter 24, verse 1. And we'll also see another reminder that obedience and worship are key to defining and maintaining the covenant relationship with God for Israel and for us, for individuals, and for the community. So that takes us to Joshua 22, verses 1 through 9. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. So, after seven years of war, fighting for their brother's land in Canaan, west of the Jordan, the duty of the eastern tribes is completed, and it's time for them to go home and start anew in the land God had given them on the other side of the Jordan. Remember that the troops of the eastern tribes had led Israel into battle, putting themselves first for a land that would not belong to them. We read about this in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, and chapter 4, verse 12. Ironically, they had received their allotment first, but would enjoy it last. An interesting example of the principle that the last shall be first that Jesus talks about, for example, in Mark 10.31. Now, throughout the passage, there is a distinction between the West and the East. And as we've seen earlier in the book of Joshua, there seems to be some tension that the East is in unity with the West, but the East is also different from the West. And in part, that's what unity is. Unity is not interesting if we're all the same. Unity is only interesting when there are differences. And we see that tension throughout the book of Joshua. As we see it here, there are some different words used. The Eastern land is described as a huza, which is translated as land in verses 4, 9, and 19. And it is never called an inheritance in this chapter. Now it is in chapter 13 verses 23 and 28, but it is not here. So maybe the writer of Joshua is trying to give us a hint of the differentness of the eastern lands from the west. We also see in this text a difference between a reference to Canaan 
in verses 9, 10, 11, and 32 as a reference to the western land versus Gilead, which is the reference to the eastern lands in verses 9, 13, 15, and 32. But whatever the differences are, Joshua is still emphasizing the unity. Notice that in verses 2 and 3, he commends them for their obedience. In verse 4, he notes that the land is from God. In verse 5, he calls them to the same standard. This goes back to the initial charge to Joshua himself by God and Moses in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and as it had been detailed throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So the East and West are not treated any differently in that regard. And on the way out the door, so to speak, Joshua blesses them twice, in fact. And the only other blessing we see in the book of Joshua is for the hero of the faith, Caleb. At the end of verse 5, after that long list of amazing verbs, and that alone is worth some discussion, he finishes with the word serve. And that is the introduction we get to the key term in the epilogue, the need for us to serve God. And of course, that goes along with worship, obedience, loving others, and the like. But the reference to serving is key to what we'll see throughout the epilogue. Now note that as much as the soldiers surely wanted to go home, they patiently waited for their general's orders. Joshua commends them for their obedience to God's word in verse 2, and their perseverance and faithfulness in verse 3. It's noteworthy that Joshua praises them so lavishly. After all, they only did what they had committed to do. But in any day and age, sadly, the fulfillment of a pledge is not a given, and in any case is something to be honored and saluted. We should take a hint from Joshua here and look for opportunities to praise other people, especially for their long-term faithfulness in serving God and others, even in the little things. The option is taking them and the God who has given them to us for granted, and that's never a good option. We should encourage people whenever we can. Likewise, we know God will commend us as good and faithful servants for the few things and the small things we have done. God's not going to overlook those things or take them for granted. The God that we follow also commends the little things, the small things. Despite their faithfulness to God and their brothers, Joshua takes the opportunity to give them a parting exhortation in verse 5. This verse says it all, pointing to a growing relationship with God and increasing obedience to his word, not just actions, but the proper motives behind those actions. Although their military obligation is just finished, Joshua makes it clear that their spiritual obligations will continue forever. Joshua then blesses them and divvies up the plunder for them to take home in verses 6 through 9. Although all of the land went to the western tribes, all soldiers who fought were to share in the plunder. Moreover, the loot was to be taken back home and redistributed, as Numbers 31.27 commanded, divide the spoils between the soldiers who took part in the battle and the rest of the community. Of course, caring for family crops and livestock was important work as well. As a community, they were to share in the wealth of both domestic and military production. This resembles 1 Samuel 30, verses 22-24, when David gave some of the plunder to soldiers who had been unable to fully participate in battle, David gives glory for the victory to God and notes that each part of the body was important, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 22. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckianus Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, the station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered Joshua 22 verses 1 through 9 as the Transjordan tribes return home and Joshua gives his encouragement to them, a charge to be obedient, thanking them for their service and so on. And now we get to when they actually leave and that's in verses 10 through 12. When they came to Galiloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galiloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. As the eastern tribes approach the Jordan, they decide to build an altar, and they did so without any delay, indicating their zeal for the task. The idea had probably occurred to them on the way home, otherwise they presumably would have told Joshua in verses 1-9. through 9. But when the western tribes hear about this altar, they're very upset and quickly gather their troops at Shiloh, where the true altar was located, to go to war against them. Now, why did they build this altar? Later, in verses 21 through 29, we learn that they perceived a need for a sign of remembrance in their continuing unity with the Western tribes. Apparently, the Eastern tribes feared being isolated from the Western tribes, separated by a large river and mountains. In essence, they saw this as yet another memorial, what would be the sixth in Joshua, an altar for remembrance rather than an altar for sacrifice. Why did they use an altar as the memorial? It was a natural choice since the altar reflected their common priorities and origins. That said, the eastern tribes could have done this better. They could have invited the western tribes to join them in building this unity altar. And given that the altar could easily have the appearance of evil, they should have consulted God or at least informed Joshua and the other tribes. Of course, they would have to explain the altar at some point. Doing so in a proactive manner before the trouble began would have preempted the military exercise that followed. What should we make of the response of the Western tribes? They certainly responded quickly, but were they too quick and too aggressive? There was initially no attempt to dialogue with the Eastern tribes, and they seemed to assume the worst about their brothers. This is especially ironic given Joshua's praise earlier in the chapter. Perhaps the fact that the altar was imposing provides some clue. Another possibility is that they had fought for so long that fighting may have become their natural response. After all, when your only tool is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. And because they had been fighting idolaters for so long, they were probably ultra-sensitive on this issue. In any case, the new altar certainly appeared to be a competitor for the true altar at Shiloh, after all, what else are altars for? By their response, the Western tribes exhibited a holy jealousy for God and his altar. We certainly cannot critique them for acting too slowly or avoiding confrontation, two common problems. And practically, if they sent a delegation and the army was needed later, valuable time would have passed when they had failed to deal with sin in the camp, perhaps a deadly delay. Remember the sin of Achan in Joshua 8. Remember also that they were supposed to deal with idolatry aggressively. Offering sacrifices at a place other than the Lord's designated place was a capital offense. And Deuteronomy 13 verses 12 through 16 provided the prescription for dealing with idolatry in an Israelite town, complete destruction for their rebellion. As such, it is admirable that they were willing to engage a perceived enemy 
despite seven years of holy war and the obvious pain of fighting one's own brothers. There could be no compromise. Idolatry in the camp was even more heinous than idolatry among the pagans. In a word, they were willing to sacrifice their lives to defend God's honor and, if possible, to bring their brothers back into fellowship. As Christ promised, following him may involve disunity when unity would interfere with following him. We are not promised domestic bliss, consider Matthew 10, verses 34 through 38, or a lack of conflict within the church. Instead, our top priority must be to define and defend proper unity in truth and in love. It's also worth noting that there's no mention of prayer from either the Eastern or the Western tribes. One suspects that prayer would have fixed the problem from either. And it's interesting in particular that the previous action occurred at Shiloh, which is where the presence of the Lord was through the tabernacle. And so maybe we're to assume there was prayer, but it certainly seems like God would have answered that prayer. And so the thing we're left with is they've got the symbols of prayer. They have the symbols of the presence of the Lord, and that they're not relying on the Lord in their decisions, whether west or east. And of course, there are tremendous lessons in all of this for us. We should go to God in prayer. We should imagine how others will perceive what we're doing. We should be proactive. We should be willing to confront sin. We have to be careful not to be too aggressive when we do so, so on and so forth. Again, a lot of really important principles here in how we negotiate difficult circumstances and avoid them in the first place. All right, let's move on to verses 13 through 20. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan son of Zerah was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Cooler heads prevail. As it turns out, this looks like all one big misunderstanding. We see admirable zeal for God from both sides, and thankfully, patience and wisdom emerge as the two sides dialogue. Coming into this passage, it looked like war was on the horizon, but instead, after talking about the altar, the two sides part peacefully. In the details of the Deuteronomy 13 passage on how to deal with idolatry, the law provided for a method of inquiry. Those concerned about idolatry in a town were to, quote, inquire, probe, and investigate, and were to take action against the town if the allegation was proven true. So the Western tribes send a high-profile delegation led by Phineas to investigate the prospective charges. So Phineas, the hero of the terrible and glorious story in Numbers 25, re-emerges here. If you're not familiar with that story, I would commend to you Word Diet episode 113, where we talked about this. But 
In a nutshell, Phineas emerges in the midst of a plague and tremendous sexual immorality and a threat to Moses' leadership. And in his zeal, he defends Moses and the Lord and, in essence, the people. He had been zealous in that story, but here he's restrained and questions them. Now, the questions are pretty rough, but ultimately it's about God Ultimately, you've got to ask some rough questions here because this is about turning away from God and doing harm to other people and innocence. And so something has to be said. Of course, erring on the side of too rough or too lenient is always a concern in these things. Notice the language here also borrows significantly from Numbers 13 and 14. Again, a really important story in Israel's history and the idea of rebellion against the Lord, this is what had kept them out of the promised land in the first place. So using the word rebellion six times in this passage is meant to evoke in them memories of the disaster of Numbers 13 and 14. And I cover that in episodes 108 and 109. So the delegation led by Phineas, the opening remarks are strong and perhaps a bit presumptive, but also a relatively tactful, well-reasoned accusation. They give good reason for their concerns, especially in noting the sin of Achan in verse 20 and the sin of Peor in verse 17. The sin of Achan, of course, is from Joshua 7. The sin of Peor goes back to the story in Numbers 25. The latter was the episode where Balaam tempted the Israelites into idolatry and fornication with the Moabites. Interestingly, it is Phineas who stopped that as well. One can easily sympathize with their fears, especially given the ramifications of Achan's recent sin. As they note, Achan was not the only one who died for his sin, and God's response could be very quick, as early as the next day, as we see mentioned at the end of verse 18. And most impressive, the Western tribes offer to share their land with the Eastern tribes, a considerable sacrifice. In a word, they put unity above personal wealth, and they constructed a gracious exit for the Eastern tribes if they would only rethink their altar. Again, a number of obvious important principles here as we communicate with others, as we look to deal with them in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's also interesting that they do talk with them and back it up with a valid threat. Think of Theodore Roosevelt's famous line, speak softly but carry a big stick, and that's more or less what's happening here. Another key principle here is that you hope for the best, you pray for the best, you pray for a smooth reaction, but you're also ready for war, so to speak. And we see the Western tribes doing this effectively. They bring the army, but they send a delegation. They're ready for action if needed. God commanded action to deal with sin in the camp. But at the end of the day, they're hoping for peace. They're hoping that their assumptions are incorrect, that their concerns are not valid. But they do investigate. They do what they're supposed to do. They do ask difficult questions. And so it's important for us to do the same to bring the army, so to speak, but at the same time to hope for peace. Some of us struggle with this, right? We hope for peace and we don't bring the army, or we bring the army and we're not really hoping for peace. And so the balance that's required here is to have both of those. 
So far, we've seen that the Eastern tribes failed by not talking about this on the front end. We've seen the Western tribes respond relatively well. And then we next need to talk about what the Eastern tribes will do in response. And it's mostly a good thing, but we don't have time for that in this segment. Lord, we thank you for what we've seen so far in this great passage the failure of the Eastern tribes, the response of the Western tribes and faithfulness to the commands you've given, concern for their community, concern for your name, concern for the well-being of their brothers, that they take the time and the energy and the risk to get involved, forcefully even, as needed. Lord, we thank you for that example. We pray that we would learn from it and what we have to talk about in the rest of the chapter. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the lessons you've given us in the narratives of Scripture. All of this we lift to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. In the last two segments, we've gotten into the first half of Joshua 22, a great and underrated passage, terrific on the importance of effective communication, both being proactive to avoid trouble and then what to do when trouble comes or seems to come. We'll have a lot more to say about that in the final segment, but for now we need to get through the rest of the passage. And so we're going to read Joshua 22 verses 21 through 34 to see how the eastern tribes respond to the western tribes' complaint. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, What do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites and Gilead, and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So basically the Eastern tribes say, we owe you an explanation. They respond in kind to the inquiry, the accusations, the concerns of the Western tribes. They open with a brief but powerful expression of their faith in God, invoking his name twice, 
both as their witness and to empower a curse upon them if they are lying. Of course, this is a very big deal. But the Eastern tribes entered this dialogue with a clear conscience, confident rather than defensive about their righteousness. The result is a calm and measured response, candid and sincere in their reply. Despite the seriousness of the accusation, they are quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, James 1.19. They also provide clear, sound reasoning, ironically, that they had built the altar to promote unity. Unfortunately, the symbol of unity was misconstrued as a symbol of apostasy. The purpose for the altar was not for sacrifice, but to serve as a memorial for them and the Western tribes. So let's spend some more time on their concern as it's expressed in verses 24 through 29. Lissa Beale says, Ironically, the fear is that those who receive such a share in the promised land will now deny the Transjordanian share, not in the land, but in the one who gives the land. And we've seen this throughout Joshua, especially in the second half, that there is a tension in the relationship that the West is different than the East. And that seems to be bubbling over here. And there would be more troubles later between the West and the East. But yet, while they're still different, they're still part of the unified whole. And we know from the testimony of Scripture that the Eastern tribes were still active participants going forward. So in Israel's history, we know from Judges 5, 15 through 17, that the Eastern tribes received the same rebuke from Deborah as the Western tribes. In Judges 10, 6 through 8, the Eastern tribes are oppressed, telling us that the East and West are part of the same unified whole. Two of the judges, Jair and Jephthah, in Judges 10, 3 and 11, 1, come from the Eastern tribes. David seeks refuge in the East. David and Solomon govern the East. God reduces King Jehu's kingdom through the land of the eastern tribes in 2 Kings 10, 32-33, implying that the east was part of the west until that point. Two of the final kings in Israel come from the east, and that's mentioned in 2 Kings 15, verses 23 and 25. And maybe most notably, the prophet Elijah is from Gilead in 1 Kings 17, 1. We also know this from prophecy. Ezekiel envisions the East within the West in chapter 47, verses 15 through 20, and then again in chapter 48, verses 4, 6, and 27. But not even prophetically, Psalm 60, verse 7, and Psalm 108, verse 8, indicate that God saw the East as his own too. So the West and the East are different, but the East and the West are the same, at least in terms of unity. We can also look at the ministry of Jesus, that he was active east of the Jordan, his baptism, calling the first disciples at Bethany in John 1. He had ministry in Bethsaida in Mark 8. He's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in Mark 5 and Luke 8. He's in the Decapolis in Mark 7. He's in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16. Some of the great crowds that he experiences are on the east side of the Jordan, Matthew 4.25, Matthew 19.1 and 2, Mark 3 and 8, Mark 10, verse 1. And his teachings on divorce in Matthew 19 and his time before the death of Lazarus at the end of John 10 into John 11 are also east of the Jordan. So even in the ministry of Jesus, we know that the East is being treated on par, more or less, with the West, different yet the same.
Now, all that said, although it seems to be well-intentioned, their altar was probably unnecessary, at least if they obeyed Exodus 23:17's command for all males to appear at the sanctuary three times per year. That said, it was a reasonable idea, but not communicated or executed properly. If they had sought God or empathized with their brothers, all of this excitement could have been avoided. Moreover, this altar may have contributed to religious straying in the future. After a few generations of falling away from God, this altar could easily be misunderstood by all of the tribes. So even if we give them credit for a decent idea, how you do it is still vitally important. And it's also crucial not just to think about the short-run implications of a decision, but the long-run decisions as well. I think broadly we can also know that there's reason for concerns here because in the Western tribes case against the East, as they're expressing their concerns, they cite the stories in Numbers 13 and 14 and Numbers 25. And those are two of the historical warnings used by Paul at great length to warn the Corinthians in the great passage of 1 Corinthians 10. That wraps up with verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And so we take the Israelite examples and hopefully we soberly apply them to our own lives. But the Eastern tribes are having trouble with this same lesson. Can we take even our recent history and apply it to the concerns of the current moment? As we follow Paul with 1 Corinthians 10 and look at the narratives and the examples of those around us, can we use those as they're meant to be, as examples and warnings, as examples of what to do and warnings of what not to do as we live out our life, taking our own promised land, enjoying the fruit and doing the fighting that's required to make advances in the battles of our promised land? So the wrap-up is in verses 30 through 34. The Western tribes eagerly accept the reasonable explanation. This tells us that despite the amassed troops, they had a disposition toward peace entering the dialogue, that they were eager to reconcile and preserve the unity if possible. They named the altar witness to denote its testimony to their zeal for God and their passion for unity in following God and to serve as a memorial. The closing irony of this episode is that the memorial ends up being more memorable because of the stink associated with its origins. And I love in that the redemption of God, that many times it's the more memorable things in our lives, which can include difficult moments, difficult by the nature of things or difficult because we don't respond to them perfectly. Those things actually become more memorable and thus become more easily redeemed, more powerful in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Think about Israel as an example of this. It's in their difficulty that we have Joshua 22 to teach those lessons. And so sometimes when we stumble and fall, the redemption of God is in using those difficult circumstances, our mistakes, our misunderstandings, our concerns, how we resolve things. Even when we drop the ball, those things can be redeemed. Okay, there's still a lot to say here in terms of applying this to our lives in general and to marriage in particular, but we'll take care of those after the break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and Friend Me there, questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we finished up Joshua 22, amazing and greatly underrated in terms of the narrative of Israel as the Western Eastern tribes split, and I think in particular the applications to communication, how well we communicate, how we fail to be proactive, how we fail to confront, how we fail to confront properly, we fail to empathize. There are just so many lessons here in Joshua 22 that you could probably anticipate a lot of the things I'm going to say. So I want to go ahead and make it explicit, though, in case you don't catch all the points I'm going to make. In a word, I think we're not very good at communicating, maybe especially in the church, especially when we deal with difficult things. We think of Jesus as a nice guy, and in fact, he was kind. And sometimes kindness means saying difficult things. In our close relationships, at work and family and marriage, difficult things need to be said. If we don't say them, we're going to cause other problems later. So the short-run and long-run implications, I'm an economist, I've got to talk about both of those. The benefits and the costs of doing something or not doing something, all have to be taken into account. And ultimately, all of this comes through prayer and the spirit if it's going to be done well. We just don't have enough wisdom, courage, understanding, empathy to be able to do these things on our own. It's only through the spirit that we can have the insight and the ability to do these things well. Galatians 6.1 says, You who are spiritual, restore a sinner gently. And there's so much in that verse about restoring sinners. That's the goal. You who are spiritual, it's a very difficult task. And the goal is restoration, not merely getting through the day, not merely papering over differences, not overlooking sin, but restoring people. So as we look back to Joshua 22, the lessons in that chapter have wide application to personal and corporate relationships. The chapter speaks to the importance of zeal in defending truth and pursuing appropriate unity. The principles developed here underline the need for effective communication, both proactive and reactive. With respect to the church, we're called to be light and salt in a dark and rotting world. Moreover, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus ministered to sinners, but did not commit a sin. Where is the balance? Mark 9.50 says salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Of course, the trick is to retain the saltiness and the peace at the same time. The options are to retain the saltiness without appropriate unity or to lose the saltiness in the pursuit of inappropriate unity. How does one do this? A prerequisite for this balance is knowledge of the truth and a heart of love for God and others. How can I pursue truth if I do not know it? How can I pursue truth with unity unless I'm filled with love and grace? A second condition is to determine the specifics of truth, so to speak, in general and in specific contexts. As Augustine's maxim puts it, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, in all things, charity and love. Of course, distinguishing between essentials and non-essentials can be difficult and the subject themselves of unity and disunity. But the general principle is to make such distinctions and to practice grace and patience in debating those distinctions and the doctrinal positions that follow. Moreover, one must determine which matters of doctrine and practice are individual or context-specific and which ones are universally commanded by Scripture. 
These conclusions come through studying God's Word, prayer, the influence of the Spirit, the wise counsel of others, considering the weaker brother, and so on. Finally, once one has determined the doctrinal positions and personal practices which are beyond compromise, one must stick adamantly to those tenets. The general applications to more effective communication are impressive as well. First, we saw that the origin of the problem was the Eastern tribes' failure to empathize with the Western tribes or to imagine the likely response to the altar they planned to build, if they had done so, anticipating the possibility that their actions with respect to a very sensitive topic would be controversial, the entire fiasco would have been avoided. Second, in evaluating the Western tribe's response, we noted that it is regrettable to judge a situation based only on circumstantial evidence. There are almost always two sides of any given story. Moreover, the Eastern tribes had been immensely faithful as Joshua had noted in the beginning of the chapter. In such cases, we should be even slower to judge and more likely to give the benefit of the doubt, at least until we have time to investigate properly. Third, we noted that the Western tribes brought their army to deal with the problem. In a word, they were prepared for the worst, but they did not attack first and ask questions later. Instead, they inquired and hoped for the best. In chapter 22, verse 18, it says, If you rebel leaving open the possibility of misinterpretation by the Western tribes or repentance by the Eastern tribes. And I love the beauty of both of those angles, the possibility that we have misinterpreted as we ask our questions and make our accusations and the possibility of repentance. Even if we're right, what do we do going forward? People can repent. People can be restored. Again, the Eastern tribes track record, the relationship the West had with the East should have allowed for even more latitude. All of these things are much more difficult when we're not in vibrant relationship with people. So for one thing, that's a call to being in vibrant relationship and also a matter of who would do the confronting. It's those who are in those sort of relationships with others who are in the best position to have those difficult conversations. Fourth, we see the importance of candid, measured, and direct communication, but in love, not arrogance. The Western tribes provide logical reasons why disobedience is not in the Eastern tribes' best interest in verses 17 and 20. They aim for peace, offer reconciliation, provide a gracious exit for those who might have made a single bad decision, and they are willing to achieve these goals in the face of considerable self-sacrifice. And in the Eastern tribes, we see the importance of a calm, measured, and logical response to accusations. Again, these are tremendous principles for us as we deal with difficult moments and conversations in our own lives. All of this provides a useful occasion for talking about communication within marriage, particularly with respect to accepting rather than trying to change one's spouse. One possible framework for seeing these lessons is an analogy to requiring your spouse to run at certain speeds. First, running a five-minute mile is beyond the ability of most people and thus represents occasions when they would be unable to do something and that would be okay unless they were very dedicated to change. Confrontation in such cases stems from the other spouse's demandingness and is inappropriate. Second, virtually anyone can run or at least walk a 20-minute mile. So this represents context in which the spouse is unable or even unwilling to do something, and that's not okay. 
Confrontation in such cases is essential, and failure to respond to a loving and patient exhortation can be a devastating sin within a marriage. But the most intriguing cases are the eight-minute miles. It can be done, but it will be challenging. Three caveats apply here. First, one must be cautious about dictating both outcomes and methods. For example, if I complete an eight-minute mile by sprinting half the distance and walking the rest, I should not be critiqued by one who jogs the entire distance. Or if one spouse gets the laundry done well, but the other spouse would do it differently, this difference is best left to intellectual curiosity. Second, one should choose their battles well and count the cost of going to war, as Jesus talks about in Luke 14, 26-33. For example, if one spouse struggles with being late, the other spouse has to decide when being late is a significant enough problem to go into battle. After all, getting to a party 10 minutes late is a decidedly different matter than being tardy to an important meeting. Third, if you think a matter is that important, your focus should first be on what you can do to help. Cooperation and complementarity are the stuff of good marriages, not leaping at opportunities to emphasize and exacerbate differences. From there, I see nine principles to promote good communication in truth and grace, especially within marriage. First, hold each other accountable, but correct gently. Better is open rebuke than hidden love, Proverbs 27.5. That said, the rebukes must be open, but tactful and grace-soaked. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, Galatians 6.1. Second, respond to criticism with a critical eye toward yourself, and without a critical tongue toward your spouse. James' counsel is always relevant, but especially so within marriage. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Chapter 1, verse 19. In a word, remember that wounds from a friend can be trusted. Proverbs 27, 6. It's in your best interest to make it safe for your spouse to challenge you, to establish an environment which actually invites correction. Third, in most cases, be harder on yourself and easier on your spouse, and be quicker to forgive your spouse's sins than to forget your own. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Proverbs 17, 27. Or as Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you, Ephesians 4, 32. Work on yourself more than your spouse. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 3, and 5. Here we see the universal principle that one should focus most of all on clearing his own table first, dealing with his responsibility for the problem before going to the other party. Our primary focus is to be on improving our own character as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. James 1.22 Fifth, consider that it's not so much how fast your spouse runs, but whether your spouse is running faster or giving a good faith effort. The Christian life is one of progress, not perfection. 1 Timothy 4.15 God looks at the heart and the person who works at such things with diligence, despite failure, is to be applauded over one who is slothful. Alternatively, it's not so much where they've been as where they're going. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. You are responsible for communicating this issue with truth and grace. 
Sixth, communicate openly and actively with your spouse rather than building resentment. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Seventh, communicate discreetly and compliment your spouse with the letter E, work with them. When you can't compliment them with the letter I, when you can't say nice things to them, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. Eighth, communicate creatively in inspiring and exhorting your spouse to greater things. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hebrews 10.24 Ninth, communicate submissively with God, in many cases leaving problems with our spouses in his hands. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And that's certainly true as we deal with our spouses. That's from Romans 12, 17. Do what you are able to do in dependence on God and leave the rest to the one who is better able to change hearts. Lord, we thank you for Joshua 22 and its lessons about communications, particularly for our marriages, because so much is at stake. We pray for better communication, humbler hearts, greater tact, wisdom, grace, as we depend on your spirit to inspire and inform us on how to relate better with our spouses in this vital matter of communication. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.